The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 267 for Monday, June 14th, 2010. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab here from Durham, New Hampshire, home from WWDC. I am Dave Hamilton. And on the other end of the Skype connection is John Efron in Fairfield, Connecticut. Welcome home, Dave. Thanks. And I, I want to wish you a happy uh, fifth anniversary because yesterday marked the fifth year since we started doing this podcast. It was June 13th, 2005, that, uh, that we did Mac Geek Cab number, uh, number one. Which, which actually at the time wasn't even called Mac Geek. Oh, I guess it was called Mac Geek. Kev. Yes, it was. It was. It was. That name came in about an hour before we recorded that episode, if, if memory serves. Wow. Yeah. Five. 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 I know. What'd you, what'd you get me? Uh, I got you Mac Geek Kev number two sixty seven. <laughs> what'd you get me? Same thing. <laughs> I'll treasure it always. Yes, that's right. Of course. All right. As usual, we got way more stuff here. Though, so let. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's go with, uh, well, you know, I've been, uh, we just hired a a new salesperson here at Backbeat Media. John Donahue is starting tomorrow. And so, uh, you know, I was at WWDC last week. So yesterday and and today I was going through the process of setting up a computer for him and was doing it with a MacBook Pro and wound up doing some migrations and kind of repurposing a couple of machines in the process. And it was the first time I'd really done this since I got Snow Leopard. And Snow Leopard makes this uh, this process a little bit different. Um, the, the first thing, it, and I'm starting at the bottom of our of our agenda list here, John. The first thing is that there is no erase and install option. So, you know, if I had a machine that I wanted to completely wipe and put a fresh copy of Snow Leopard on uh, there, it would not be. It is not obvious uh, how to do that. What you have to do is boot from the installer CD or DVD rather. And then once you get the installer up, you go to the utilities menu, you choose disk utility. And then from there you either erase or repartition, which also causes an erase uh, of the, of the drive in the computer. And once it's erased, then you quit disk utility and you're brought back to the installer, at which point you can walk through the installation. And, and so it, it the, the snow leopard installer does not do the erase and install. You have to do the erase manually, then it'll do an install. And then that install is now uh, a fresh install. And it'll ask you about migration assistant and all that other stuff when it comes up. But the first time I did it, I just kind of walked through because I was waiting for the prompt, right? You know, you, or you wait for that little options button. It's just no longer there. Uh, so I wound up installing it twice because I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why does it still have all this old? Oh yeah. You know, so it's very interesting that, uh, that they pulled that out. I get why they did it. I mean, they wanted to simplify the whole process, but uh, but very interesting that that that's uh, that's what it uh, that's what it was. Any any comments there, John? You with me still? Skype? No, I'm with you. OK. Well, I, you know, I, I rely on your comments as an opportunity for me to sip my tea. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, uh, so once you you know, once I had that up and running, of course, the migration assistant did come up. And the message with the migration assistant was initially what I wanted to do was, was migrate. Uh, I wanted to set up one machine, migrate all the stuff from another and then wipe the, wipe the second machine. 
So uh, when it came up, you know, you have an option where you can in the installer before you even start the installation, you can go to the utilities menu and all the way at the bottom is restore from a backup. And what that'll let you do is hit the restore from a time machine backup. But it's very clear on that screen that you should not restore from a backup from another machine. It should be the same machine or at least at the very least the, the, the same model machine uh, mm-hmm. and not a different processor, not a different motherboard, etc. So, uh, so, you know, I, I, I did not do that. If you want to restore from a time machine backup from another computer, what you do is you install Snow Leopard first. Then when the migration assistant comes up, instead of pointing it, you have a couple of options with the migration assistant and you can point it. One of the options is you can point it at a time machine backup from another computer and migrate stuff in from there. Uh, You can also point it at a disk image from another computer. And of course, uh, if both computers have firewire, you can use firewire target disk mode. Uh, to to migrate the stuff over, which is the traditional migration assistant path where you set one computer in target disk mode by holding down T when it boots and then pulling that data over, uh, treating that other computer just like it's an external hard drive at that point. Or, of course, because I ran into this when when I helped upgrade uh, mom from the old uh, trusty iBook G4 to the brand new um, MacBook. Um, Of course, the new MacBook... uh, doesn't have a firewire port on right. it. Right. Oh, you can do Ethernet, can't you? Yes, exactly. And yeah. in this case, the, uh, the, the, the fastest connection um, was actually... Now, the only other thing is that when the iBook uh, came out, uh, 100 base T was state-of-the-art. So it was a 100 base T connection. So it, it, it took a while, but sure. it was the fastest connection and actually the only connection, really, uh, between the two machines to uh, accomplish that. Got it, got it. Yeah, that's um, right. So you can, you can do network, and you could, you could do... Uh, you don't have to do Ethernet. I think you can also do wireless, right? If they're both both associated to the same wireless network at that point. Yeah, but of course, you know, the wireless, uh, especially on the older machine, was, um, you know, much, uh, it was not the fastest option. That's right. But yeah, I guess, you're, I guess you're right. I I don't recall seeing that. It, it usually makes it pretty explicit. Okay, either hook up a network cable or a firewire. But, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad they had at least one port in common because uh, I... Yeah, I'm not too happy with them, you know, pulling that firewire port out. But yeah, it's, like, it's a, I guess they got to differentiate between the machines, right? I guess. I guess. But uh yeah, so you know, the the other thing that you could do is make and I always do this whenever I'm repurposing a computer is before I wipe it, I make a disk image of it and I just save that off somewhere on some big, you know, firewire drive or a Drobo or something like that where I know that I have a you know last use case disk image of that machine archived off somewhere, and I'll, I'll keep that for several years. And then fi- you know finally, like when I when I was doing it last night, I realized I had some that were a couple of years old, and I just trashed them because I, I don't need them anymore. But that has come in handy three four months down the road. Like oh yeah, that thing I used to do that for whatever reason migration assistant didn't you know beam it across. It's like yep, no problem. I just mount the drive, go get what I need. It's all right there at my fingertips. And uh, it saves a lot of headache. So uh, so you could, uh, you know, from the uh, from the disk utility, you know, at the very start, you boot up from the Snow Leopard DVD or or Leopard or Tiger, you know, whatever you're doing, uh, go to the utilities menu, choose disk utility. And from there, you can restore from a disk image Uh, again. Apple doesn't recommend this because they don't know if you're going to 
have the the right stuff to boot the new machine from the disc of the old machine. But in the old days, this is what we used to do all the time, John, right? You know, you get a new machine and you just clone it from the old one, you know, pre-migration assistant days, just clone the whole drive and then go and reinstall Snow Leopard on top of that. Uh, But you don't have to do that anymore. Thanks to migration assistant. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that was the, the simplest way to get all your stuff over and then make sure you had an OS. It wasn't entirely clean, but it worked and, and it still in theory would work. You just have to boot again from the, from the DVD to, to put an operating system on there. So, yeah, that's what I did too. And this uh, upgrade is uh, pretty much, you know, did a carbon copy cloner. Yeah, exactly. Of the driving the old machine and uh, they actually donated, uh, you know, the old machine to charity. So, um, so the old machine is not even around anymore. In addition to donating their whole, <laughs> uh, she, uh, she actually uh, kept the, uh, the, the old toilet seat. Um, Oh yeah, book. Remember yeah. Those? I do. <laughs> like I that do. was a G three, so that's yeah. long way back. So so they were able to donate those and get a couple hundred bucks right off. Good. All right. All right. Uh, you know, moving on to George's question here because it's so related to uh, to what we just talked about. Hi guys, George from Willow Springs. How you doing? Hey, I got an interesting problem. I just upgraded my machine to a MacBook Pro from a MacBook Pro, but this is now the new one with the uh, black keyboard and the i5 chip. And interestingly enough, my FireWire 2 or FireWire 800 uh, external drive, which has a bootable 10.6.3 Snow Leopard uh, volume on it, no longer boots, nor does a... 10.5.6 10.5.6 or whatever the last version of Leopard is, uh, that doesn't boot either. So I'm wondering why in the world that would be. These are both Intel chips. I wonder if they snuck in a new kernel into 10.6 uh, as a function of these new i5 and i7 chips. Maybe you can help me out on that. Have a great day. Thanks, George. Uh, yeah, it, it, doing a little bit of research online, you are not alone, George. Uh, there are many people reporting the same thing. And indeed, there is a different build of 10.6.3 uh, that is on those new MacBook Pros. I guess Apple didn't have, you know, a 10.6.4 or whatever, whatever's next uh, in the pipeline or at the right spot in the pipeline to bundle with those machines. But that is a different processor, even though we've seen i5s and i7s before, as we talked about uh, this is a different flavor of the i5 and i7 than is in the iMacs. So not not all that surprising that uh, that the previous build of OS 10 just simply didn't have the, the guts to support hmm. it. So I'm kind of surprised. Are you? I mean, it's it's a it's an end. Uh, I mean, I don't know if the i5 or i7 is, you know, a, a massive departure from, you know, the prior chips other than the, you know, hyper threading, you know, as, as right. we, we talked about earlier. So it does kind of surprise me that, um, that the new chip doesn't understand, uh, you know, code, uh, you know, targeted for, uh, it kind of surprised me. Well, you know, it, 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 looking at it a different way, it may be that the code for the OS says, if your chip ID is this, do it this way. If your chip ID is that, do mm. it that way. Right. And this has a chip ID that matches something that doesn't have the capabilities of uh, that, that the OS expects, right? It's not the mm. same I five or the same I seven that we had in the, in the IMAX. So there, there might've been a, a simple little nuance or a simple little, you know, compilation time switch 
that uh, that made the colonel happy to run on on these chips. So, mm-hmm. and of course, the way that uh, typically, well, there are two ways. I, I I assume he tried, you know, both. Of, well, I think he mentioned this. Yeah, so you know, when you you start up your machine, you hold down option, and it shows you all potentially eligible bootable devices, or you want to be sure to, of course, explicitly select it and start up this. We've talked about that. Otherwise, a lot of machines will default to netboot, which I, I, I have never run into anybody that actually uses that, but um, it looks for a bootable uh, device on the network, which I think usually most people don't, or it's a netboot server, I guess is, is how they do that. Yeah, I've done it with the with the Hackintosh uh, machine here, and it, oh, it works oh, fine. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, it's it, it works. It works. Uh, all right. I want to talk about our first sponsor here, John, and that is Barebones Software with Yojimbo, uh, specifically you know, the new Yojimbo version 2.2. So Yojimbo is an app that allows you to collect everything that you wouldn't put anywhere else. All those text files of data that you've got, all those uh, PDFs that are just sort of cluttering your desktop, but you don't want to throw them away. Uh, you throw them all into Yojimbo and then you can categorize, you can search. They, it holds everything all together. I create, I use it to organize our show notes. I put PDFs of the emails that we read in there. I have one file that winds up being a rich text file that I build the agenda in and then also drag in the audio files like George's that we just played and it ties it all together. And then, of course, it syncs via mobile me, even though I'm having a problem syncing via mobile me right now. Uh, but that's no great surprise because that's how mobile me goes. Uh, you can also sync with your Dropbox. Uh, and that indeed has proven very reliable for me. The new Yojimbo has something called Sidekick, which makes some of most even of your Yojimbo data available as Web pages. And you can use that preference pane to tell Yojimbo which items it should export and where it should put that exported content. And what you can do is you could put that on your Dropbox. You could put it on your mobile me, you know, web page. You could put it on your personal web server. And then you can access your Yojimbo data from your iPad, your iPhone or any, you know, Mac uh, that's, you know, or, or even Windows machine, anything that's got a web browser. So, uh, that's Yojimbo version 2.2 from Barebones at barebones.com. Yojimbo, of course, is available for a free trial for 30 days. Once you're totally hooked, at the end of the 30 days, it's 39 bucks. And uh, you can do a family pack for 69 bucks. Uh, or if you're a student, you can do it for 29 bucks with the educational deal. So that's Yojimbo from Barebones Software at barebones.com. Uh, you know, while we're while we're here, I do want to mention and, and there'll be an article going up at TMO. I've got a couple of people interested in the position of webmaster here at uh, at TMO. As I mentioned, our own Stephen Swift is heading off in the fall to grad school. And so we are looking for someone to step into that role. I was going to say step into his shoes, but uh, everybody's shoes are different here at TMO. We all kind of do different things. So we're looking for someone to come in and bring their own skill set. Uh, but but certainly in that lamp world. And if you don't know what lamp is, then you're probably not the right person for the job. But uh, <laughs> but if you know what lamp is, uh, we use that. We you know, expression engine is our our core. We also do some file maker stuff. But really, we're looking for somebody that can come in, uh, do some lamp JavaScript, CSS stuff for us and, and just help keep everything uh, running smoothly. So if you are interested uh, and available, 
It's uh, Dave at MacObserver.com is the right email address to send that to that. And only that the rest of the stuff goes off to the other one uh, because that way it gets to John and I, but, uh, but yeah, if you're interested, uh, send me an email and, uh, and I'll be putting a note up on TMO uh, hopefully tomorrow. It's I've got a lot going on. Like I said, we're starting a new employee at backbeat media tomorrow. So things are a little bit hectic around here, but we're here. So that's a good thing. Should we go on to T uh, Tiari? Uh, I think I've got the name pr- pronunciation, put, right? Did I get yeah, that right? Put it in there. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think it's Tiari. Yeah. All right. So we'll go on to Tiari and he says, uh, this problem has me baffled. I receive PDFs by email daily from various banking institutions that I use for my work. Some of these emails come in as an embedded PDF and they're fine, but sometimes they come in showing zero bytes and the PDF is blank. The second part happens quite often. My email setup is as follows. I have a number of pop three addresses. My main Gmail account collects them all and forwards them to my mobile me account on mail.app. I just have a mobile me account. It works like a charm except for this problem. I'm not sure what I installed then other uh, other than uh, mail tags. And lately, I'm not sure. Uh, OK, there's some English issue here, but uh, I use mail tags and mail act on to move emails around using rules. But I'm not sure that that's the problem under mobile me beta online. The bad emails do not have the size of the PDF, but it shows uploading because this problem happens from various sources. I assume that my it's my system that's causing it. Can you think of anything? All right. First of all, I don't think it's your system that's causing it because if it was uh, your issue would show up, would not show up in the webmail interface at mobile me. Uh, so it's not your Mac that's causing it, but it may be your system of email management that's causing it. Uh, Gmail does have that pop uh, slurper or whatever it calls it, where it a pop fetcher, where it goes out and fetches pop mail from all these various clients and funnels it into Gmail. I'd be curious if, you know, start, start honoring the troubleshooting process, right? Step back through the chain at various steps and see, okay, look, you know, we know they're not getting to your computer, but also sounds like they're not getting to mobile me. So let's go back one step further. You know, don't forward them out of Gmail. And now let's see, are they in Gmail? If they aren't okay, well now take a step back to the pop account and, you know, trace this back and find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very least, maybe, you know, maybe try subscribing to one of these with just your mobile me account. So it's going straight there and you're bypassing this, you know, this, this Rube Goldberg email uh, thing and then see, <laughs> right. You know, that, that it's, it's, it's a troubleshooting process and you have to, you have to kind of take it one step at a time. Right. Right, John. I mean, that that's, you know, that's, that's what we preach anyway. Don't change too many things. Don't change more than one thing at once because then you don't know what fixed it. If you do it, wind up in fact, fixing it. Right. Um, I mean, it could be that whoever's providing the PDFs, maybe that thing is barfing and you are in fact getting zero byte PDF attachments. Right. That's right. Yeah. You might be getting the email exactly as it came from. I was going to say as intended, but that's not as intended, but you might be getting it exactly as it came from them. That's right. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, I'm sure they're using some automated system to suck up data and maybe the, you know, database connection or something is broken and it's not smart enough to figure out it's, it's sending out nothing. So um, one remote thing is that, uh, you know, he's forwarding uh, attachments and um, it sounds like it's going through a number of different pipes Yep. And a lot of mail servers, um, I don't know if this is the case, but it's worth discussing. Just yeah. Because, um, yeah, no, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of times attachments, various mail servers, and I actually ran into this the other day, it was actually trying to send an email uh, which had a uh, attachment of a, of a log 
uh, on the Mac, and actually I got a bounce message from the people saying, up the log file's too big. And I'm like, guys, anyways. Uh, now, in that case, the, the remote mail server actually did say, sorry, dude, uh, the limit for attachments is, you know, however many megabytes. You know, and, and usually I think most mail servers, because, you know, mail servers really were not intended, although they're used for this uh, still, are really not intended to be transferring files. They're really meant to be transferring text. But, you know, it's all hobbled together. So maybe one or more mail servers along the way said, uh, you know, this is too big. It should reject it, but maybe instead of doing that, it passed on what it thought was important and just didn't deliver the attachment. Um, you know, another fun thing you could do is is actually log now. No, we, we don't want to suggest logging directly into the mail server and trying to list the message, which will show you the encoded MIME content because you could be there for years. Yes. Yeah. Unless you're really comfortable with pop. Uh, yeah, that, that could get. And even if you are, that, that could get messy. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, your your best bet would be I'm trying to think of what mm. it was. And maybe it was MailSmith. Uh, the hmm. old client, it, it used to be Barebones software, but then uh, essentially Barebones disowned it, um, which which meant that Rich Siegel, the, the founder and CEO of Barebones, and, and as he calls himself, the chief typist, uh, it took it over on his own. So it, it is still supported in a way, but uh, but what it had, among many other things, is it had kind of a pop inspector where you could you could use this this windowed interface to look at what was on your pop server without actually downloading it first. Right. So you could really manipulate and see what was going on. So that would be one thing to do is actually, you know, cause it'll pull down the headers and, and kind of show you different things that are going on that, that, that might be helpful. But before you do that, you've got to tell Gmail to stop slurping mail from the, those pop servers. Cause otherwise it'll pull it out right from underneath you. Actually, one more thing, Dave. Yeah. I'm trying to find it here. Eh, you may want to try this. He, he's using mail app and I'm looking right here. I've done this on occasion. This is always fun. If you've got a lot of time to kill is, um, <laughs> I think it's long headers. Yeah. Um, usually what you see in an email message is an abbreviated version of all the, all the stuff at the beginning. You may, there may be something in the, and let me just click on this. Yes. Okay. So if you click on long header, where, to, to where, where is he clicking on that? I'm sorry. So in mail. Yep. View right message, um, and you'll either see it'll either say default headers or long headers. Right, there may be something buried in the header that indicates what went wrong or who's the. the a lot of times, uh, in the long header, you'll see things like you know the the name of the remote mail server and maybe the program used to generate the PDF and and some other fun stuff. Uh, sure, it, it's worth looking in there to see if there's anything out of the ordinary in that long header. So. One more tool yep. to help diagnose the problem. Yep. Cool. You know, while we're on the subject of Gmail, and, and I know we're only loosely on that subject, I did want to mention something. Uh, John, you and I were talking about uh, Gmail before, and you, you just happened to mention that you said you're in, in Mail.app. Now, you use Mail.app to connect to Gmail. You happened to mention that your Mail.app's trash folder was filled up with all this Gmail spam. And that triggered a red flag for me because of something that I learned a couple of months ago with how Gmail manages spam. And right, because right. it keeps getting full, and I don't want my mailbox to get full. So I sure. Um, so you well, delete the spam. And uh, well, well, the way I was doing it was to put it in the mail trash. Right. So what and what happens is when mail uh, interfaces with Gmail. 
it's doing it, or at least the way you're doing it, John, is over an IMAP interface. And I'm doing the same thing. And that that really is the best way to do it. Uh, and I know I've promised this article. It's got to go up by tomorrow because I've got to give it to John Donahue when he starts so that he can configure his Gmail properly. But there's a couple of things you can do uh, in order to make Gmail and IMAP work happily together. What the, the, the big one is turning on advanced IMAP controls in the Google Labs section and then going into folders and making it so that the all mail folder uh, does not appear to your mail client, uh, because that way you won't start getting duplicate copies of all your mail. Uh, so with, with that, though, you do get access to your spam folder and it's very handy uh, to go through your spam folder on your Mac. The way Google, uh, because on your Mac, you can sort by subject. And I find that sorting by subject is the best way to go through and find uh, any false positives, right? Anything that the spam folder found that it should not have called spam. So uh, when you're going through and you find a false positive, all you have to do is drag it out of the spam folder into some other folder. Presumably your inbox, but it could go anywhere else. And that trains Gmail that it's not spam. Conversely, If you in your inbox find something that you feel is spam, you drag it from your inbox or wherever to the spam folder. And that trains Gmail that it is spam. But it's important to remember that with IMAP, when you delete something, what it does is it takes it from a folder and moves it to another folder called trash. But that folder could be anything. It doesn't have to be trash. It could be whatever you want. So uh, Gmail doesn't necessarily know that you want to trash this message. All it knows is that you've pulled this message out of your spam folder and inadvertently, and at least in in your case, John, and probably in many people's cases, you've inadvertently marked that message as not spam. So the proper, does, does that make, did I get that right, John? I think so. Okay. All right. Uh, the proper way of, uh, telling of, of doing this is one, I would continue to scour through it on your Mac because again, you can sort by subject and that's very handy. As soon as you're done scouring through it, go ahead and launch the web interface for Gmail, click on the spam folder. And then at the top of the spam folder, you'll see a little uh, line that says delete all spam messages. Now, once you've gone through and made sure there's no false, you know, uh, false positives in there, then just click that button and, or click that link. It's a, it's a, not actually a button. It's a, looks like just a hyperlink. Uh, And that will delete all the spam in your folder. A, it does it without untraining Gmail for you. And B, it does it without filling up your trash mailbox. So you get kind of a double whammy there. Mm -hmm. All right. I uh, do a couple of different things when I'm filtering. Because, yeah, I mean, first off, it is just a spam magnet. My gosh. I get like 100 a day. And it's, you know, the usual Viagra, and you know, uh, now I'm getting you know BP oil spill. You know, you uh, you're eligible for compensation, even though I'm in Connecticut. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, a lot of times, I'll look at the two field. A lot of garbage I see is that two field is not in fact my address, but something like subscriber, right? Or an address that's not my address, or the best one sometimes, uh, especially when it's telling me about the the large winnings that I just had in the lottery is a uh, recipient list suppressed. Right. Of course. It's like, if I just won the big deal lottery, why are you suppressing the address you're sending it to? Obvious spam. Anyways. Um, but no, yeah. Gmail does a, a wonderful job. I actually take this stuff in there and I train my spam sieve cause I still use spam sieve under mail. Uh, so I find that it, it it's an additional training. Mm-hmm. Um, for that all right. cool moving all right yeah moving on to uh to chris 
Chris has a, he has a tip for us. And then a question. So Chris writes uh, for the person with the possible logic board problem in previous show, actually two shows ago, I think I heard he was one month out of Apple care. Apple can and often does still cover that repair if he pleads his case and has some luck with the genius at hand. One month is not unusual to extend the warranty, especially considering that this person spent the money on Apple care to begin with. Even standard warranties are often extended for a month many times. So uh, the, the lesson here is if you are just shortly past your Apple care expiration date, call and, and beg for mercy or, or go person to person if you're uh, doing an appointment at the Genius Bar. And you may very well get uh, get covered under Apple Care, even though it's, you know, just slightly out of warranty. So that that's good to know, Chris. I had not heard that before, but it makes sense. Uh, you know, to, uh, no reason to drive people crazy over that. So. Number two, he says you covered sending out from the ISP, uh, sending mail out from the ISP and blocking port 25 is really OK. But what about when I'm away from my network? What about when I'm at a, at a hotel or on an Apple store network? Some ISPs do not let you send mail through them from the outside. They won't even let you authenticate. Okay, so what Chris is talking about here is, let's say, for example, he has uh, Comcast as his ISP when he's at home, and he has his mail server set up to be Comcast's outgoing mail server. And that works fine when he's at home. But as soon as he goes somewhere else, Comcast says, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, you know, you're not in my network now. So I don't accept mail from you. And it does that to prevent spam. So the question is, what do you do or what are the options of things that you can do when you are out and about? So, John, you, you, you had a good a good geeky answer that that actually works. Uh, it, it sometimes works. So go, go ahead and, and we'll do the geeky answer and then we'll and then we'll get to something that's uh, a little okay. more a little more simple on the on the back end. But not quite well, I got geeky. a couple here. So one, I believe some. ISPs will provide a authenticated SMTP or normally they'll still detect that you're coming from an external network and say no because of spam. But right. Um, I mean, I'm looking in mail here and this is an option. Um, the, if you authenticate yourself, you know, give them a username and password, then they may let you use them. But, but I think most don't do that. And I, I've never used that myself, but one thing you could do, and I have done this when I traveled and I was using, um, uh, wanted everything in my in my current mail client. Um, the thing is, you got to figure out if the place you're at even offers an outgoing mail server, and a lot of places may not. Uh, but when I've had to do this, they did. And here's the trick. Um, so you got to figure out the name of it. Well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of times it may not be. It, it may be the name of a third party providing the service. Um, but what you can usually do is run something like that. The one that I'd like to use is something called whatismyip.com. And if you run that. Surprise, you will see the IP address of uh, they've been assigned, uh, even if it's a, the, the outside address. So it'll give you the outside address, which is what you're going to need. And then what you can do is try to do an NS lookup on that. That'll then tell you, and say it's, you know, uh, www. You know, hotel.com. Okay. Sure. N not that that's going to be it. Or, you know, uh, yeah. ISP, uh, hotelisp.com, okay? Sure. Well, I would guess that their outgoing mail server is probably called, and th this I've seen in like 99% of the cases, it's either going to be called mail.hotelisp.com or smtp.hotelisp.com. So if you're willing to, if they even offer an outgoing SMTP server and you can figure out the name 
uh, the name of it, then you can plug that into your mail client and then you can send uh, using that. So that's that's all. It's geeky, you know, which. Yeah. But but if you but I I don't think that's the best way to do it. And, and I think you have a better way of doing it, Dave. Well, the, you know, the way that I do it is I don't want to have to reconfigure my mail client every time I'm on some alternate network. And and the, 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 while this certainly goes back to the days when I was just traveling around with a laptop, it's a whole lot more important when traveling around with an iPhone. Right. Because, you know, having to to do all of this work uh, on an iPhone just to figure out a mail server to get mail out is is insanity. Right. You know, you just don't want to have that headache. You want to just send mail and walk away. You don't want to have to care. Am I on 3G? Am I on wireless? What wireless? How is it working? Who's the ISP? You might not even know how to do this on the iPhone because there isn't really a terminal unless you jailbreak the thing. So, you know, there's all kinds of wacky stuff that you'd have to do. So. What I do is I recommend one of two things. Uh, set up a mobile me account as your, you know, set up one account into which all your mail comes if you can. Uh, but if you can't, at the very least, set up one outgoing mail server and use it for everything. As long, and I'll use the caveat that as long as your, uh, you know, your corporate policies uh, allow for this, if they don't, then you've got to set up your work email to to go through one outbound server and and then the rest of your email through another. But assuming you have the flexibility to do it, set it all up to go out through either a mobile me account, which is built to be used from anywhere or from a Gmail account, which is also built to be used from anywhere. Uh, you would have to authenticate by you know typing in your username and password into your mail client. But uh, but then at that point, mail just sends out no matter where you are. And it's a pretty seamless experience uh, and, and it's exactly what you would expect it to work like. And you're just not thinking about it. Just like you can check mail from anywhere. You want to be able to send mail from anywhere. And that's the, that's the way to do it. Anything else, John, on that one? I think we, uh, I think we exhausted that. One. All right. So, uh, speaking of traveling, Tim has a question. Hey guys, Tim in Chicagoland. Once again, just listening to two sixty three, and wondering once again about the setup of an airport express for use in a hotel room. This uh, topic comes up every now and then and you guys uh, sing praises and everything like that. My question is, how do you get this thing to navigate the hotel's sign on system that says, yes, I accept the charges or yes, I accept the you know, the, the terms and conditions, if it's free, uh, along those lines. That way, I don't have to do that from whatever device that I'm connecting. Some devices, like the iPod Touch or an iPhone or an iPad, obviously with a web browser, that doesn't seem to be a problem. But with something, say, like a gaming console that doesn't have an, a browser or some other device, how do you uh, set this thing up to be in some semblance of default mode? And as Pete says, where you plug it in and it just turns green and grabs the IP address to where it's uh, usable. So thanks again. Appreciate it. And uh, great show. Still listening. Thanks, Tim. All right, John, you want to take this one? Hmm. I'm, you know, I think that we got some bad news here. Um, I am not aware, you know, this would actually be a cool little device to build here. Unless there's something I don't know here, Dave, you have to, uh, whatever authentication system these guys are using, you have to, you must click on the checkbox and say, okay. Right. Before they do whatever they do in the background, I don't know if they give you a cookie or, or something that they, they, or they flip some bit in the router that says, okay, now you can allow this person to, uh, to get out. Uh, I don't know the details of the systems that do this. But um, basically, you got to get 
something. So my recommendation is get the, the cheapest device you can get that has a web browser, like maybe uh, an old, you know, iPod touch or something. Yeah. That's actually a good idea. Yeah. It, it, it it's important to note that it, it's while it's possible, I don't think anyone actually uses a cookie as the, as the authentication method. And the reason is while you can set a cookie in a web browser, that wouldn't necessarily authenticate an email client because there's no cookie to be read when you're sending and checking email. So I think what happens on most of these is that you fire up a web browser when you connect to the internet and then it tries to request a web page. You're redirected to the web page of the hotels choosing you, as Tim said, agree or pay or both. And then uh, it basically says, okay, this IP or this uh, address allows uh, is now allowed to browse the internet, uh, you know, at, at will. And once that happens, you're good to go. So, so the idea is, Yes, like John said, you need a web browser, some device with a web browser, and a cheap iPod Touch is probably your best bet, uh, unless you can find, like, you know, a Palm Pre that somebody threw away. Uh, but uh, what you want to do is you want to make sure that things are connected in a certain order. You want the hotel's network connected directly to your Airport Express or any other, whatever base station is, you don't have to use an Airport Express. So whatever base station it is, you have the hotel's network connected to that. And then make sure... Your devices, all of them, are connected wirelessly or wired to your router. Don't also don't connect to the hotel's Wi-Fi network because that's not going to do you any favors here. So you know, connect to your Airport Express and try and pull up a web page. You're going to be redirected, but once you authenticate, it now basically has said that that Airport Express, not the device you're using, but that Airport Express, is now free to use the network at its at will. And all the devices you connect to it are going to masquerade on the Internet, uh, just like they do when you're at home, uh, as that one device, as that Airport Express. So that that's what you need to do. But, yeah, you've you got to have some way of, of agreeing to that. There's no there's no ifs, ands or buts on that one. Yeah, and I'm with you because I actually had one case where I think what I did by accident, um, but I convinced them to, to undo what happened is typically the the uh, wireless will make a note of the back address of the device that's requesting access okay and i had this happen one time where actually i think i fired up my macbook pro connected to the wireless and realized oh no no i want to use my own right um, and what happened is because i already had one mac address uh, assigned to my room when when i tried to then use the airport express to do the same thing right it said oh, oh sorry who, who are you you're, you're someone else i'm going to charge you more i'm going to charge you as if you were a separate device or a separate sure. machine sure which it was, but then I think when I went down to the desk later on, you know, they're like, you know, it, it appeared twice on my bill. And I think I said, dude, I only have one computer. How could this happen? Feigning right. ignorance. And yeah. I said, oh, well, that makes sense. Of course, sir. We'll take that extra charge off. Yeah. They've gotten a lot smarter about that now that uh, it's not uncommon for us all to have the same, uh, you know, all to have multiple devices. So, you know, I've I've seen it displayed pretty explicitly in hotel rooms that you will be charged, you know, X amount per day per device, hmm. uh, even with a, a caption, you know, or, or a, a parenthetical that says, uh, and that includes phones and, you know, PDAs, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, you're definitely better off this week at the intercontinental. Um, I connected my laptop to the Y to the ethernet there. And then when I was in the room, I just shared the, the ethernet from my laptop, um, just because the ethernet connection was, was so good. I mean, it, you know, like I said, that one night it was pretty, 
it was pretty tight, but uh, as everybody was downloading all the new stuff, but, uh, but otherwise it was, it was great there. So mm-hmm. worked out well. All right. Uh, you know, let's do our, our, uh, I want to talk about our second sponsor, which is go to assist express from Citrix. Same people that uh, do web meeting and all of that stuff. Uh, Citrix has go to assist express, which is a way of connecting to another computer remotely. Uh, and very easily, I might add, when John and I tested it here, I logged into GoToAssist Express on my end. I created a link, uh, created a session, and then that generated a, a URL. And so I passed that URL. It was just a normal HTTP, you know, colon slash slash URL. I sent that to John. Uh, meanwhile, I waited, as it said, you know, waiting for the other party to begin the session. As soon as John opened that URL, he was asked to agree to what was about to happen. And then, boom. I was, I had access to his machine. John could see what I was doing. I could control it. Uh, you know, John could stop me at any time, but otherwise, you know, free access over the internet, uh, didn't have to go and muck with port forwarding on either one of our firewalls. We didn't even have to think about the fact that we were both behind routers. It just simply worked. And that's because we both started the session from within our web browser. It wasn't like I tried to remotely start the session on John's machine. So go to assist express from Citrix uh, is the, is the way to do this. You can get 30 days for free by visiting go to assist, go, sorry, 30 days free at go to assist.com slash gab. That's G A B go to assist.com slash gab gets you 30 days free of go to assist express from Citrix. And with that guy has a question. We just can't let go. Hey, John and Dave, it's Guy from the MyMac.com podcast. I just recently got a letter from, from one of our listeners, and his, his basic problem was that he has an, an older Core Duo iMac, 17-inch, that he wants to install boot camp and Windows on, but it's, it's a little tight at only 80 gigs. And he wanted to know whether he could put windows on an external drive using boot camp and, and go ahead and use it that way. And, you know, I looked online and there was a couple ways to do it, but it seemed to be a little more complicated than, than what he probably wanted to do, you know, involved disconnecting the internal drive, modifying the windows installer, so on and so on. But I thought of a, a couple of different ones and I, I wanted to run them past you. Uh, the easy one, of course, is to replace the internal drive with one that's much bigger, which isn't a bad idea with only an 80 gig drive anyway, and then install boot camp and Windows as normal. Uh, the second thing I thought of was to make a very small partition using disk utility for just the Windows OS, no apps, and then use the external like a D drive. And the, the last thing I thought of kind of scared me, and I, I wanted to run this past you first, see what you thought, and that was to combine his internal and external drives into one partition using disk utility. You know, back up all of his data first, combine the drives, and then reformat, and then you'll boot back up and, and, you, and use that one partition and install, you know, OSX from either his backup or from, from the drive, and then boot camp and Windows. Now, I'm not sure how this would work on startup, if OSX was across two drives, you know, maybe it would also depend on whether the drive was USB or Firewire, and it would probably require you to always hold down the option key on startup to force the, uh, the computer to examine all available drives before booting. And, of course, if he lost either drive, you know, he would be toast as far as all of his data goes. I thought that might make a, a fun weekend project for people with more money 
in time than since. And the fact that I even thought of this says a lot about the potential for the, the Dr. Frankenstein in me. Anyway, um, that's all I got. I, I'd really like to know what you guys think. Uh, this is where you don't cut me off. I can be reached at guy at mymac.com. Thanks again. Bye. Thanks, Guy. Always good to hear from you, man. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, hearing this and hearing your thought process behind it, Guy, definitely, uh, well, it reaffirmed uh, my my knowledge of who, who exactly you are, because the Dr. Frankenstein was was plain as day in uh, in that description, especially the last one. But even in the second one. Uh, so, uh, you know, John, my my feeling on this is you don't do number three. I don't even know if number three is possible, but if Guy thinks it is, it probably is because he is dr frankenstein uh when it comes to this stuff uh, my reaction to number three was what are you nuts no actually yeah. it, that gets great respect for me now actually i'm looking here very quickly dave and i do believe you can do that because i'm actually looking right now at my g5 so what he was saying when he said combine drives now of yeah. course i'm not going to do this because that that would bring our podcast to an abrupt end screeching halt <laughs> that's right but no i'm looking here so what what he's saying when he when he said combine the drives is um this utility gives you the ability to create a raid array Okay. Um, so I think he was uh, proposing was stitching the drives together to make two uh, raid. One thing that raid can do is to make one or more drives appear as a single drive when in fact they are multiple physical drives. Right. And I believe what you would do, uh, and, th- and they have three choices here right now, Dave, there's a mirrored raid set, a striped and a concatenated set. I think this would be a concatenated, right? concatenated this set. Yep. And I'm looking here and it's allowing me to define a RAID set, and I dragged over an external drive, which uh, we can go into the story of how I accomplished this, but I have right now on this computer both, I have two internal drives and an external drive, and it, I'm not going to click on the create button again, this could, uh, yeah, this would bring things to a halt, but it appears to let me drag both internal and external drives. The external drive is a FireWire 800 drive. I would say you could do it. I I mean, it it sounds adventurous. a very out me. Well, I mean, it, it it is. I mean, that's kind of what Raid does. I mean, the I computer know. shouldn't care. But yeah. but yeah, to me, that would make me very uneasy because the risk, of course, is if one of the other drive dies and you're just doing a simple, you know, ching without any sort of error correction, then your your setup is uh, is shot. So yeah, uh, but I, I I will give that. I, I'm giving that solution geek points for creativity because yeah. I would have never thought doing that. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, no, I, I and I agree. Yeah, it it surprises me that that works, but but not really, like I said, because, it, you know, if, if guy thought it worked, it's probably because he's done it. Um, so that and, and that speaks volumes about those guys at my Mac. It's 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 cool what, what you know, that they're willing to, to dig in and, and just do crazy things. I like that. Uh, you know, so solution one or two. Um, either way, you're partitioning the drive, right? Because that's that's part of what boot camp is. Uh, so, you know, uh, I would go with a bigger drive, but Mm -hmm. if you already have an external drive, I think option number two is actually pretty cool where you do a very, very bare bones, you know, just enough for the OS install of, uh, of windows and then use the, an external drive as, as your D drive as, as it were, I think that, I don't know, you know, I think that's cool, but I'd go with option number one. I would prefer option number one, just just to, you know, if you're running out of space anyways, you might as well. Um, so option number one is the one that I would do, though, though I give the other 
two points for uh, for a creative way to approach the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's get into some follow-ups here from uh, from our previous shows. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the, the first thing I want to do, we got, I got quite a few emails about my, my little rant about uh, ad blocking and all that stuff. Uh, to be fair, I don't believe that the blocking flash is a bad thing. In fact, I, I encourage you all to do it. Um, and, and at backbeat media, we tell all of our advertisers, we advise them not to use flash because so many people block it and it, you know, runs so poorly on the Mac in general that, uh, that, you know, you only want to run flash when you, when you choose to, you don't want to have it, you know, poured into your machine. So, uh, so just to, just to be clear, you know, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, blocking flash does is, is not akin to blocking ads, even though the result of it may be that you wind up blocking some ads. Um, we talked in the previous show in 265 about unsupported scanners and Snow Leopard, and we got quite a few emails uh, from people. I'll mention one of the things, and John, you've got another thing. Um, View Scan from Hamrick, H A M R I C K dot com is a third-party scanner driver. I believe it's only for USB scanners. It would not find my networked uh, HP LaserJet 3055, uh, but it probably would find it if I plugged it in USB. I just did not try that. But uh, but lots of people, Neil and uh, William, actually plenty of, of them, uh, and they say it's kept up to date and it works just fine. And so, and I think it's 39 bucks and you get updates for a year or you can pay 79 bucks and get updates for a lifetime. So, um, so that's view scan from Hamrick. Definitely, uh, definitely worth talking about. And then John, you found uh, you, in fact, you did a, a, a Monday's Mac gadget about another one a little while back, right? Yes, I did. So this is, um, this is the free option. Um, you know, I, I, I think playing with something like view scan would be the, uh, you know, the way to go if you want to get the, the most support, but this is probably worth a try here. I found something, and as you pointed out, did an article on it called Twain Sane. Now, here we have acronym soup here. So, what is Sane, you ask? Well, Sane is um, an open you didn't source let project. Me ask. <laughs> what is uh, Sane, John? Well, Sane is an open source project called, uh, which stands for Scanner Access Now Easy. Isn't that clever? <laughs> and then, of course, Twain, as we discussed, is technology without an interesting name. But basically, this product, it's called Twain Sane. Um, it's a freebie. Um, it is supported under Snow Leopard. I, I just looked at the page here. Um, and basically, it is uh, an attempt to give you Twain support on scanners that would otherwise not support Twain. And as we discussed, the, the benefit of a Twain scanner versus uh, something that has proprietary drivers, a Twain uh, uh, driver will let you use a number of programs, including Graphic Converter, Image Capture, OmniPage, Word, Photoshop, I think, you know, a whole bunch of things uh, will be able to, to deal with the scanner. So I didn't look for the particular model of scanner, but um, this is certainly worth exploring. Uh, the most it'll take is a little bit of your time. I don't think it'll hurt anything. Um, I tried it with a Fujitsu I have, which is uh, I like their included software, but you know I just like the options of um, you know being able to use other programs rather than their program to to pull images from the scanner. And it um, it had a few hiccups here and there, but again, worth a shot. Um, and the price is right. Cool. Uh, all right. So we also talked about grounding policies, uh, our grounding policies, meaning not not our parenting policies and how I 
uh, choose to to stop my children from going out when they do something wrong. But uh, grounding in terms of working on a computer and what to do when. And, and we got quite a few emails uh, and I wanted to acknowledge we wanted to acknowledge all of them. Uh, saying that, you know, by not using a grounding strap and even worse, leaving a desktop machine or any machine, but a desktop machine plugged in when working on it is not advisable. And 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 that's that's fine, um, you know, and 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 it is good to read up on this stuff and, and make your own decision. Jason sent a audio comment through uh, that I think is worth uh, worth sharing here. David John, this is Jason. Uh, do work at the Apple Store as a genius there, and just to give a quick comment about the grounding and how working on computers. The process that Apple makes us follow there is we actually have a mat there that's grounded itself, and regardless of any computer, always unplug everything. Include and when we do the laptops, we unplug the battery, and we wear the grounding strip that's actually attached to the mat, and so that we're grounded. And the computer lays on the mat that's grounded. So we never have them plugged in. Uh, when we go through training, that's the first thing they tell us to do is unplug uh, before we work on anything. So just to give that comment, that's how we do it there. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so, John, go ahead. I know I know you've got something to say here, right? I assume. Well, I, I would say, yeah. So I'm going to revise. Uh, so both. Well, I'm going to revise uh, what I said here. I, I actually looked online and there was a site. Um, can't remember off the top of my head here, but I actually found uh, an article that, you know, uh, where the, the people that wrote it went to a number of people that run computer service places and uh, asked, you know, their opinion of what they should do. And for the most part, most places said, leave it unplugged. There were a couple, but but the majority of people said, leave it unplugged. The, the thing, with, of course, with leave, if, it, if it's plugged in, however slight, especially if the so, so I mean the thing is the voltages coming out of the power supply sure. are not going to hurt anybody you know it's typically 12 volts and 5 volts um, so yeah that's not going to hurt anybody um, however in the incredibly unlikely event that there is a malfunction in the power supply um, 120 volts uh, I don't know about you Dave I mean when I was a kid I you know I stuck a fork in an outlet and uh, and I'm still here to tell the tale but you uh, yeah but 120 volts isn't what it used to be yeah <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, so so I, I'm going to modify my position and say you should unplug, even though that's what both you and I do uh, from from this point on. If I work on a desktop machine, I'm going to leave it unplugged. You still want to ground it, though. I mean, and right. that's what everybody's saying. So. Right. And, and as uh, multiple people told us, the best solution is to get one of these anti-static mats, which has something that typically goes to the center screw on the outlet, which is ground or should be ground. Now, you may also want to make sure that. Your ground is correct, uh, and they sell these little devices, um, like at Radio Shack and other electronics stores, which will tell you um, if your outlet is is configured properly. Yeah, that's it's not a good guaranteed. Point. I mean, yeah. it's not guaranteed. I mean, it's not guaranteed that the center screw on your outlet is going to ground. It should, even if you have a third prong. Somebody may have not installed it properly, so, so you may want to do that too, just to verify. Now, the one thing you want to be very careful of, and, and although these are are not in fashion uh, anymore. This is definitely something you want to be very, very careful with, and I'll have to find a way to deal with this. But um, CRTs, uh, which, again, I think most people are not using uh, uh, tube monitors or cathode ray tubes is what they're called, had this little thing in there called a step uh, flyback transformer. And, and is it called flyback, John, because that's what happens to you when you touch one? <laughs> well, it certainly could, but then this gets incredibly dangerous because a CRT 
Um, what, what the flyback transformer basically does is take the incoming voltage, 120 or otherwise, and increase it because what the tube does, it needs uh, more than 120 volts. And especially if some of that energy is stored somewhere, either in the transformer or capacitor or something in there, um, you could kill yourself by messing around with the monitor. So, so I would say, first off, you know, I mean, if you've got a CRT, I mean, you know, if it's broken, chuck it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't see any compelling reason to get a CRT over a LCD, especially in this day and age, uh, whether it be price. I mean, you know, they, they consume well, more power. They, well, they, oh, go. So I, I, I know that there are those out there that care about color matching. And I ah, don't believe okay. that you're going to get color matching uh, accuracy anywhere else other than in a CRT. So, so there are still quite a bit of CRTs sold to that high end community and, oh, right. and, and they're, and they're not cheap. So there is the, the, you know, the, the instinct is, well, if it's broken, let's fix it. And that's fine, but have it fixed by someone that knows exactly what they're doing. Do not open it up. Uh, you know, I, I think it can hold that charge for six months to a year, right. Or maybe more. Right. I mean, it, it, I know it holds it for a very, very long time. It's not it's not just unplug it. And, you know, and, and that's that. So. Right. I'm hearing a little feedback. Yeah. No. You know, I thought that was feedback, too. Uh, it's actually my iPhone ringing. Uh, and I have it on mute, but it's on the desk. Oh. And oh, I guess vibrating. my mic stand is just nudged up against the desk. So that's that's what that was. It was not feedback. I thought you were okay. humming, John. Yeah. But, uh, OK. Yeah. So. Definitely a CRT or, or tube, uh, only if you know what you're doing. I, I wouldn't even, um, uh, I would not even try to work on, uh, when I had them, if there was something wrong with it, I, I wouldn't even think of going inside. Well, I may have once just to see what's inside of there, but definitely with the power off and not touching anything. So, yeah. Thanks everybody for, uh, and, and it was good to, to learn uh, the Apple people, uh, how they do it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, all right. You know, we got one other thing that we'll throw in here uh, from the, an interesting use case for an iPad that I, I thought was, uh, well, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm an audio guy. I'm a, a musician. So th this this sort of, you know, near, very near and dear to my heart. But uh, anyway, here we go. Dave and John, this is Dave from Sargis Woodstock. Second time I'm trying to leave this message because I'm calling Skype from Skype on 3G, and uh, it didn't didn't make it all the way through the call before. But uh, I was just calling to talk about uh, 266 that I just started listening to, and uh, comments about the uh, iPad as a travel companion. I bought mine in Chicago. I was I'm a sound engineer. I do a lot of touring, and um, I bought mine in Chicago when I was out on the road. And uh, with the intention of taking it to London in a couple of days after that to uh, integrate it uh, via Jadu VNC uh, or iTeleport now, integrate it uh, into controlling uh, the Yamaha digital console that I was working on in London uh, in order to kind of walk around the venue and do sound checks remotely using the, um, the iPad. So that was my idea. That was my initial intention uh, uh, for the reason I wanted to buy it, mainly because I couldn't then justify it as a business deduction. And when I got to London, we tried it, hooked up uh, the laptop to the console, and it worked flawlessly. A little bit of latency, um, a little bit of jumpiness, but for the most part, it worked great. I was on stage tweaking monitors, I was up at the balcony tweaking EQ, and it was 
probably the most amazing, coolest thing. There are other PC tablets that work with these consoles like this, but nothing is uh, as nice as the way the iPad is working. That's awesome. So that was the main reason why I bought it. However, uh, it took me about a week to sort of warm up to the other functions on it. I felt a little goofy at first, pulling it out in public because of the size of it and just, you know, it wasn't really a very, very common thing yet. Not a whole lot of people have seen it. But uh, once I did warm up to it, the, uh, uh, the travel factor, like you were saying, Dave, is just great. It's, a, it's the best travel companion I could imagine. It's, uh, you know, I've been reading a couple of books on it. I'm in the middle of reading Googled, The End of the World as We Know It, which is an awesome book. Um, I'm reading that. I read another kind of trash novel before that. And I've watched some movies on the planes, done tons of emails. Uh, one of the flights I was on, I think it was a Delta flight that had uh, in-flight internet. It was great, sir. And I think that, that that's at the point at which 3G and Skype no longer got along. So thanks for sharing that story, Dave. That's uh, that's actually pretty cool. Pretty cool use case for uh, for the iPad and for a tablet in general. So uh, I, I think, John, I think that's uh, that's all uh, that's all we wrote. Oh, that's what my clock says. Yeah. Uh, feedback at MacGeekCab.com is the email address to which you can send all of your feedback. I, I believe you said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to differ with you on that, Dave, and I, I would rather send it to feedback at MacGeekCab.com. Oh, no, no. Feedback at MacGeekCab.com. Unless, of course, you're a premium subscriber, send it to premium at MacGeekCab.com. And I will say about the premium subscription, uh, we did make a migration to a new payment uh, system recently. Uh, I think it's working very, very well. But uh, but, you know, it, and then, you know, there's there's uh, several of you every day that, that convert up to the premium. And we certainly uh, very much, in fact, appreciate that. But uh, but, you know, send us a note. Let us know how the process was. If you if you thought it could have been a little better or smoother, if you really liked it, just send us a note to uh, to premium at MacGeekab.com. It's uh, it's something we, we were looking for feedback on that just to make sure that's working for you like it's uh, like it's working for us. Twenty five bucks for six months. You can't beat it. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number to which you can send, you can call and leave messages, much like Dave did and uh, mm-hmm. and various other people in the show here. Yeah, I think that's 4335. That's right. Excellent. Good catch, John. Uh, you can Skype to MacGeekGab and... Uh, and then you can leave us iTunes comments. We can't reply to those, but uh, but we do like seeing them both uh, both positive and negative as long as they're constructive. I, I do want to say one thing, uh, and that is as best as you can, please be concise with your emails and phone messages. Uh, it, you know, all the stuff that you've heard in the show today it certainly fits into that that realm just fine. But uh, but we do get some emails that are just, you know, four or five pages long. And to be quite honest, we don't always have the time to go through it and certainly don't have the time in the show to read a five page email. So if it is something we want to discuss now, we've got to chop it down and and all that stuff. So as best and I know some things take a lot to explain. And if it takes a lot to explain, do that. But uh, but if you can chop them down uh, to, uh, you know, try and try and make it as concise as possible. That that makes our job easier. And and frankly, 
it significantly increases your chances of getting an answer from us. Even if it's not an answer on the show, we do often answer most of the emails that come through. The only ones that, that we wind up kind of glossing over are those that are, you know, five pages long. And if we've got, you know, another 200 emails backed up behind yours, it's like, well, I got to come back around to this one because I got to get through everything else. So uh, so that's just the reality of the way it is. I wish it were different, but uh, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So. And sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Absolutely. Sometimes not. That's right. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but sometimes, uh, and we, we found more often than not, I think that screenshots and things like that uh, help help explain a problem better than, you know, you, you retyping it in when right. uh, you can show us. Um, and, you know, details always, you know, try to... Um, you know, try to give us as much detail as you can if you're, uh, you know, as far as the OS version, the machine, you know, things like that. Don't don't assume we know your setup. Sure. Although we may because, um, well, we're watching. That's right. All right. Thanks, folks. Have a uh, have a great week and uh, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next time. The We Have Communicators Process podcast from Michael Johnston is uh, where he is when he's not converting this show. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. Podcast Marketplace is the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine. Yo, Jimbo from Barebone Software. Text Expander from Smile on My Mac. Notebook from Circus Ponies. And go to assist.com slash gab from Citrix. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And do not get caught. Made up.